Happy Saturday. It's March 5th, 2022, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker. And I'm Michael Haney. And we are two of your deputy editors here at Airmail. Welcome to March, Ashley. Is this the Ides of March? Is that the 4th or the 8th? This is the month that comes in like a lion and goes out like a lamb. Okay. It's all coming back to me now. Well, if I'm feeling somewhat disoriented, you can't blame me. It's been a crazy week in the news. We had such a great response last week. Everybody loved having Alessandra on to give us her insights on Russia and Putin and Ukraine and what this all means. So we are bringing her back again. Welcome to Alessandra Stanley, our co-editor. She was a Moscow correspondent for the New York Times in the 1990s, right after the fall of the Soviet Union. So she understands what's going on better than most. And she's going to illuminate us and enlighten us. So welcome to Alessandra. All right, Alessandra, thank you so much for joining us again. We really rely on your expertise and insight here. So tell us, where do we find ourselves now one week into this war? Overnight, right? We went from like never turning on the news a week ago, or at least I never did. And now CNN's on all the time. And instead of seeing sort of weather maps and charts of election results, we just see these huge maps of Ukraine with all the different places where the Russians are. And it's just have to sort of pinch yourself to say, is this really still true? <laughs> For some reason, I still haven't gotten over the initial shock of it. So as we say in Russia, no good can come of it. Well, last week, we talked about how Putin seemed like he was kind of alienating himself from his advisors and losing some of the internal support that he had for this war. How do you think that's evolved over the course of the past few days? Well, he's certainly warned his cronies. He called in about hundreds of Russian businessman and said, you're basically, you're either with me or you're, or you're over. And the interesting thing, I read this actually in the Financial Times, I think, that it used to be that if you were a Russian businessman and you were sanctioned by the United States, it was a badge of honor. And overnight, it's become, if you haven't been sanctioned, then you're a suspicious character, right? Because if you're not the United States enemy, you're not our friend. So he may be crazy, but he's functioning and he's doubling down on the war. So what I hope is going to happen is massive demonstrations in Russia, because that's really, if it's a couple thousand people, the police can control it. If it's tens and hundreds of thousands of people, then it becomes something else. But it's sort of hard to tell people to risk their lives and imprisonment for a demonstration. I mean, you don't really want to ask people to do that, but you wish they would. Yeah, it seems like a week ago, we thought that there could be three potential scenarios, right, in terms of how this ends. Are we any closer to sort of figuring out what that might look like? Oh, God, no. <laughs> no, I'm actually more interested in how this all started. And the piece that I wrote this week was looking back to sort of say, well, wait a minute, what have we done to contribute to the situation? And there are at least two places where the United States cannot feel totally blameless. The oligarchy system that was set up in Russia under Yeltsin was set up basically with the under the advice of Harvard economists who were advocating for a very fast, they called it shock therapy, privatization of the economy. And the result was what we have now. Well, it was worse then, but millions and millions of people were totally impoverished overnight. And then really smart Russian businessmen just figured out how to scrape up state property and hold on to it. And plenty of very smart Americans thought this was just fine at the time. And now we're living with the consequences. And the other thing, which has been bugging me, is Biden, everybody's going after the oligarchs with these threats of you can't run and you can't hide. But in fact, they can run and they can hide because we have a completely unregulated financial system where it's very easy to hide your money. You don't even have to go offshore. You can hide it onshore. And I don't think we ever really in this moment, we're not really looking at an economic system that has enabled all these people to get their money out of Russia 
and store it with us. So in many ways, you think some of this oligarch hunting is just optics, it's just PR on the parts of these governments? Well, no, you got to do it. I also think it's very hard. I think that, yes, you can take away a yacht, but there's other assets you're never going to get near. So it's good for show. I hope it worries Putin and I hope it scares his people. But I think it's too late now to try to track down all that money. You can get some of it, I bet. I think a lot of people are hoping that like, if enough yachts are seized, Putin's going to get enough angry calls from these oligarchs that like, he might be tempted to call the whole thing off. Is that completely unrealistic? It's a wonderful fantasy, but I think it's very unrealistic simply because they don't, he doesn't care, right? So nobody calls Putin and says, you got to stop this. He calls them and says, you've got to do more. There's no talking back to him and there's no a circle of wise men giving him advice. They're all scared of him. And rightly so, because he's proven he's not only kills his enemies, he kills his friends. So no, I wouldn't put too much hope on that. In the story you have this week, you mentioned, I think it's great context. You arrived in what was left of the Soviet Union in 1994 in Moscow. And you talk about seeing these people who were former military officers, nurses, professionals, selling goods on the sidewalks, trying to raise any bit of hard cash. And it was this period which was known as Katastroika, right? Which was, I guess, the catastrophe after perestroika. Well, that's what they called it, yes. And it was a stark contrast because oligarchs, that was just the very beginning of the oligarchs. And they were sort of more like mobsters than yachtsmen. So you had these very, very suddenly overnight rich Rush, rich Russians, the nouveau riche Russians. And then you had all these millions and millions of really poor people. I'm embarrassed to say this, but the first nanny we had for Emma, a Russian nanny, had been a engineer on a, on a Soviet nuclear submarine. And she lost her job. And the only job she could get was babysitting. So I think we Americans don't understand how traumatic all that was. But it was a very bad circumstance. And now Putin's kind of returning Russia to the brink again. I mean, he may go out of office the way he came in with the ruble worth nothing and the country is shambles. And unfortunately, perhaps Ukraine laid to rubble. But I don't see how Ukraine gets out of this. And I don't see how he gets out of this because he's already made clear. He made it clear today that he doesn't want to stop. He wants to take the whole country. As a journalist who lived in Moscow, what do you think the environment is like right now for the journalists that are there at this moment? How do you think their lives have changed since this invasion began? Well, I mean, I think everybody's terrified because Echo Mosvi is a sort of very independent radio station that had been allowed to function until now. It was independent. It was pretty brave. And Putin figured, I think, that only intellectuals listen to it. So why bother? But now he's cracked down even on that. So I don't think journalists are feeling good about anything. And I think the hardest thing to do right now is to report on this if you're a Russian journalist. But a lot of my friends who are Russian journalists are just going to protests. So it's a pretty dire situation. Well, and I suppose it's heartening in some ways that we are getting a certain form of citizen journalism, right, through social media. I mean, this is the first conflict on this scale that's been fought when we've had the internet. Well, I mean, I have never, ever voluntarily read Twitter. And now I'm, I can't stop because it is the fastest way of hearing what the updates are. It's hard to read because there's very hard to filter for accuracy on social media. But we're now in a situation of constant crisis where we just want to keep updating and updating. In this vacuum that we have of real journalism, especially coming out of Moscow, it's interesting how these images that soldiers and citizens of Ukraine have uploaded onto Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. And in many ways, like that's a way of communicating information to the Russian people, right? As long as they're able to access it. 
If they are, right, exactly. It's a minority of Russians who are that active on social, right? I mean, out in the countryside, it's less of a thing. But I'm hoping that you can't block this stuff. I mean, the Chinese are much better at it. I don't think the Russians are as good at blocking. But again, one video, there was a wonderful video that I just saw of a Ukrainian woman screaming at a young Russian soldier and just making him feel bad. And it was kind of great. But that's not what this war is. It's a great moment for us who just want to feel like the Ukrainians are being brave and fighting back. But that's a glimpse of one thing. It's not the whole picture. It does seem also in this day and age, in this moment in history, the fact that Biden gave a State of the Union address where he said, we're going to catch all these oligarchs and we're going to take away their yachts and stuff. And in that entire speech, he didn't say that, by the way, standing up to Russia means sacrifice on everybody's part, be it oil prices, inflation, all those things. It scares me that he doesn't have the political strength right now to even say what people should know and must know. But the fact that it's not sayable, even at this turning point moment like this, is kind of depressing. Because, and Michael, you and I have talked about this before, all through these wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, right, we were never told that everybody has to chip in and sacrifice, right? It was just a volunteer army. And those who were not directly involved with the military had nothing to do with that war, practically. And here now we are at, in the middle of a new Cold War um, moment of crisis, And the American president can't tell his own people that they need to pull up their socks and make an effort. Just saying we're going to go after the oligarchs is a bit naive. There's a lot more to be done. And you can't do it if you're pretending that nothing bad is ever going to happen to us. All right. Well, listen, thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Well, I think we're going to have to have Alessandra on pretty much every week, Michael. She is uh, really the resource for this for everyone's sake. Just when I thought... We'd had four years of doom scrolling under Trump. We'd had two years of doom scrolling under the coronavirus. And now, just as like that doom scrolling show was ending, now I've got another doom scrolling series starting, which is like World War Three. So you don't get a break, do you? Cheery. The news. Never a dull moment. Yeah, let's move on. Remember the 90s when impeachment seemed like the most extraordinary thing happening? Now that'd be like buried on page three. Yeah, remember the 90s when the most scandalous thing was, did Millie Vanilli write a song? That was really what we had to worry about. Well, let's talk about some interesting things that we have in the issue, some hopeful matters. We have a delightful story by Emma Freud this week. This is in Culinary Matters. Emma takes us to Sally Clark's restaurant in London, where Sally has been serving the toast of Notting Hill for the past 37 years. And it's just like this marvelous, homey, comforting little haven in the middle of the city. And Emma interviews Sally to talk about what makes it so special. But in addition to this being a great story for lovers of food, it actually provides some interesting insight into art history because it turns out that Emma's uncle Lucian Freud was a regular and she is able to ask Sally Clark some really fascinating questions about what her uncle was like when he was coming in for breakfast and lunch. So highly recommend you read the story in the issue this week by Emma Freud. You know what he was like? He was hungry. I was, he was like, just a joke. <laughs> Everyone's always asking us, where should I go get a drink or go to dinner when I'm in New York? Last week we were talking about the Fasano. This week we've got Great news for cocktail lovers. Did you ever go to Apoteca? No, I didn't want to die in a fire trap. (laughs) Okay. So Apoteca was this great little cocktail bar in Chinatown that was very popular with the cool crowd for a while. And it was the brainchild of a guy named Albert Trummer. And he got into a little bit of trouble because one of his tricks was lighting drinks in his bar on fire. And it turns out that he got busted by the New York Fire Department. And he ended up kind of losing his business, in fact. And he now has a comeback with a new bar called Dom. And Jay Cheshi is one of our 
fabulous contributors, talks to Albert about his new project and about all the very good cocktails that they are serving there. So this is a cool little speakeasy on Park Avenue South. It's called Dom. And I think this is going to be one of those places, Michael, where you and I are going to have to go get a drink. All right. So what's your feeling right now? Like masks are basically coming off in New York. The positivity rate here is basically 1%. Scale of 1 to 100. What's your positivity rate about feeling about New York right now? I'm at 102. Oh, girl. New York is back, baby. I went to the gym for the first time in two years. Let me tell you, it felt delicious. What? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. My dear, I've been to Barry's Boot Camp twice in the past week. You're not even going to recognize me the next time you see me. Mm. It felt good. I mean, it was a little disconcerting at first, but then I was like, as I could feel my abs getting stronger by the minute, I said, life is all about trade-offs. Life is all about trade-offs, but you're reminding me now on the tip of getting back in shape and self-care. I want you to explain to our listeners maybe the best piece, Linda Wells, our new beauty and wellness columnist. She's only like three columns in. Every column is better than the next. But this one, if this deck for the piece doesn't hook you like it hooked me, I don't know what will. And this is a piece that Ashley edited and wrote the deck for. So the headline is, I the beholder and the deck is, can scrubbing the toilet be classified as self-care? And I guess it is, right? So will you explain what's going on here? Well, I mean, this is a weird thing. And I always thought that I was perfectly comfortable using my seventh generation countertop spray. But it turns out that several enterprising entrepreneurs have come up with better options for cleaning products. And Linda takes a look. Including Courtney Cox. Including Chris Jenner and Courtney Cox, yes. But Linda's very proud of herself. She doesn't mention Chris until she's at least halfway through the story. But during the pandemic, I think a lot of people started looking at the really boring things that we do as a ritual, something that should provide meaning rather than being a mindless task, which is why brands like The Laundress that specialize in highfalutin laundry products have become very popular. So now we're seeing this extended to all facets of home cleaning. We're supposed to enjoy the cleaning that we do, Michael. We're not supposed to look at it as a chore, but rather an opportunity to care for ourselves. And so Linda tries out a lot of these counter sprays and floor cleaners to see if they're really worth the hype. And she finds that, in fact, they are. She thinks they're just fabulous, that they smell incredible, they're really well made, and they make your house a more pleasant place to live. So you know what I have to say? Give me the rubber gloves. It just reminds me, actually, about this old skit on Saturday Night Live back in the day with, I think it was Dan Aykroyd and Chevy Chase, and they're arguing over a floor wax called Shimmer, and the argument comes, it's a floor wax, it's a dessert topping, it's a floor wax, it's a dessert topping, so go look it up on YouTube, you'll find it, but it's like things that are supposed to be for cleaning, suddenly people want to eat them or smell them. I can't believe Linda did this, but she actually used a dish soap as a shower gel because she was so enamored with the scent. I can't believe it, and she actually enjoyed it, so there you go. These products are really that good. Okay, so speaking of happier times and happier places, let's go back to the 90s. We've got a great tour guide today in the form of Dana Brown, who has a new memoir out on March 22nd called Dilettante. And it is a really fascinating story of his times in the glory days of magazines. He was Graydon Carter's assistant at Vanity Fair, Graydon being our illustrious boss and co-editor of Airmail. And Dana went on to work at Vanity Fair until 2018 as an editor. And he's seen a lot and he's here to talk about some of that with us. Welcome, Dana. Dana, welcome to Morning Meeting. Hi, guys. Thank you for having me. Hey, Mike. How are you? <laughs> hey, Dana. What? Nice to see what? you. Nice to see nice you in a place other than uh, the Connie Nast building. I know. I feel like the last time I saw you was over in the West Village for a coffee on a park bench six feet apart. We were sitting in a playground. We're drinking coffee in the, in the middle of the pandemic. We're sitting in a playground. Yeah. 
it was great. It was lovely to see you. We are bitching about life, but now here you are. We are bitching about life. Oh, I'm still bitching about life nonstop. That's so true. That has not stopped. But now you're bitching beautifully in your new memoir. Yes, I get to bitch publicly in words that will live on beyond me. Dana, let's start at the beginning. When Dilettante begins, where exactly do we find you? So the book starts in 1994 behind the bar of the Royalton Hotel, which is where I had been working for about a year when April 94 rolled around. And the first few chapters are about that place. And Michael must remember the Royalton in 44 and was sort of the media central, media and fashion and and arts kind of was the power lunch spot. And it was where all the models and rock stars went at night to drink. And it was in the Royalton Hotel, which Ian Schrager owned. And of course, Ian was behind Studio 54. Brian McNally was the restaurateur and he opened the Odeon and Indochine and another other restaurant. So it was sort of, it was sort of the hot spot. And it was kind of the first time I think that Midtown had a hot spot in a long time. Midtown was not cool in the 90s. It's not cool now either, but it really wasn't cool in the 90s. And so I was working at that bar and I met Graydon through that job and through Brian. And he happened to be looking for a new assistant and oddly hired me. Dana, Graydon's often said that you are among the very best assistants he's ever had, which is an exceptionally high bar. What made you such a good assistant? I think it was, um, I was totally untrained. I hadn't gone to college. I was like a total mess when he hired me. It was sort of like my one shot. It was like my one shot. And I kind of knew that. And, and because I wasn't, because I really wasn't educated, I had to sort of work three times as hard to succeed there. And so I did. I mean, that's sort of all I had was my work ethic and assistant job. This is terrible to say, but you know, it can be kind of mindless. It's filing, it's typing up letters, it's getting coffee. And I just busted my ass and worked hard. And that was it. In the excerpt that we have in the issue this week, you talk about one of your most memorable stories being one of Graydon's gatekeepers to a Vanity Fair party. What happened? We were throwing a party as sort of in the early days of Vanity Fair's parties. I think that we'd only done one Oscar party by then or two maybe, but we were sort of becoming known for our events and we threw a dinner and a big after party for Valentino. He just opened it or was in the process of opening a new store on Madison Avenue. And it was a big bash. It was during fashion week. And I got a call in Graydon's office from someone I knew saying that Donald Trump and Marla Maples wanted to come to the party. And I asked Graydon. They actually wanted to come to the dinner, which was much smaller than the party. And Graydon said, well, it's full. We can't. He can come afterwards. And, and to make a long story short, Donald Trump has trouble taking no for an answer. And he showed up at the dinner. And obviously, there was no space for him. It was a seated dinner. I don't think Greg necessarily wanted him there anyway, although they weren't on terrible terms yet. And Donald Trump showed up, and I turned him away from the door, much to his amazement. I don't think he was used to people saying no to him. And he screamed and yelled at me and called me a bunch of names and stormed off. I just want to pause the tape right there, Dana, because let's not run through this moment, this delicious moment so quickly, because... At the moment when you're standing there with the clipboard and maybe a headset on, I'd like to, I don't know if you're one of the girls with the headsets, but you were. This is pre-headset. You have the clipboard and the cigarette. Yes. 
But I picture the way you so beautifully describe it in the memoir. Just want to plug it again. People, please read this memoir because it is so beautifully. It conjures these great New York moments. But here it is. Donald Trump walks up with Marla and his publicist, Jason Weinberg. And it's like, uh, uh, uh. And there's a very young Dana. And Dana says, sorry, you can't come in. At which point, Donald Trump says six words that... We've often heard other people say in this town, and maybe some people on this podcast have even deployed them themselves, and they are. Do you know who I am? Now, of course, he had walked up moments before I had referred to him as Mr. Trump, so clearly I knew who he was. And I think in the book I say it was sort of his Pavlovian response to being denied entry anywhere. Do you know who I am? Which comes with this menacing, i.e., do you know what I can do to hurt you? Exactly. There is an insinuation to that phrase from the Donald, as we used to call him in the 90s. There is an implied menace. Yes, for sure. And I was a kid. I was like 22 or something. And it would have been much easier just to let him in and let someone else deal with the problem. But I really stood my ground. And he yelled at me for a few minutes and then stormed off. And Mike, as you mentioned, the insinuation of I can hurt you. The next morning, in fact, he called the CEO of Condé Nast. was a man at that point named Steve Florio and told him the tale and insisted that I be fired. And so Graydon got a call from Steve. Florio saying, you know, apparently someone didn't let Donald Trump into a party last night and he's very angry and is insisting on him being fired, which thankfully Graydon didn't do. But I believe we did send Donald Trump flowers that day as an apology. That was probably the last time that happened. Yes. Yes. Dana, you've seen a lot of assistant memoirs come and go, and your book is about so much more than that. But what took you so long to write it? And was there any hesitation in writing about your experience with Graydon? Yes, totally. In fact, I still sometimes wake up in a panicky sweat and I'm like, why the f*** did I write a book? I figured someone was going to tell this story. Listen, Michael was there. It was a really special time and it's gone. It was a really magical time. We had fun, but we also were creative. We did really great work and we enjoyed ourselves. And it started fading at a certain point. And I left Vanity Fair in 2018, left. I was pushed out amongst a number of other people and took a couple years for me to, to really start to think back on that time and say, you know what, maybe I should write a book. Okay, Dan, I have an important question. You mentioned the era of which we were a part of, that kind of last golden era in print magazines. We both started as assistants and worked our way up to become high-level editors. But I guess in the most general way, the world you and I came up with as assistants at a place like Connie Nast, where as I'm sure you used to know what I used to know, which was like, there's no such word as no, right? It was, you just had to get everything to yes. You could never say no to a request. And I look at it now, I guess this is an open-ended question to you, a man of a certain generation like myself. Don't, we kind of look at the fragility of a certain generation of assistants now and think like, what? You had to learn to be trained in these things, right? You're so right. I don't mean to be offensive to our younger listeners, but you just, everything that was asked of you, you just did. You figured out a way. I think it was the last gasp of political correctness had not entered the office yet, especially at Condé Nast. I mean, nothing was off limits. Nothing was out of bounds. You didn't sort of have have to watch what you say. And we all had wicked senses of humor and were making jokes all day. But you're right, Mike, we were not coddled. We were not coddled. We did what we were asked of and what we were told and we didn't complain. And if it meant working on a weekend or jumping in a car to get dry cleaning or like whatever, it's like you just did it. 
Like you just did it. I think that was part of why I succeeded and ended up staying there so long. And one of the reasons that Ashley said Graydon said I was one of his best assistants ever is I just never said no. I just always got it done and just figured it out. What are some of the things that you love most about him that you remember? What are some of the best learnings that you've had from existing in his orbit for so long? I think the key takeaway, not I'm trying to think of like specifics, but Graydon has an amazing sense of humor. And everything becomes a joke or everything becomes laughter. You just have to laugh at everything. Like, don't take everything too seriously. You're going to deal with so much bullshit in life. Don't let yourself get dragged into it. Just have a smile on your face and move on. Dana, when exactly is this book out? Who's your publisher? Give us the brass tacks here. So the book is coming out on March 22nd. Ballantine is publishing it. All right, Dana. Well, first of all, thank you so much for this fabulous excerpt. It's been a blast to talk to you and relive these moments. Michael and I are going to be devouring this book. Actually, Michael's probably already read the whole thing five times. I have not yet. We can't wait to hear more from you in the issue. And we will see you at your book party on the 30th, which Graydon is hosting. Thank you, boss. By the way, when was the last time you went to a book party? Like, it doesn't even matter that it's mine. It's just like a book party with other human beings and drinks. And I'm mostly excited just to sort of put on some real clothes and get out of the house and see other human beings. So I look forward to that. I'm just wondering if there's going to be who has to keep the door and if there's going to be a crasher there. Maybe I should just work the door. Exactly. That's what you should do is just work the door. Maybe I should just stand up there with a clipboard. I could put a mask on so nobody recognizes me and just turn everyone away and just have a few people in there. Thank you guys so much. I love the podcast and I love Airmail and I love now being part of it. It's very exciting for me. Great to have you here, Dana. Oh, thank you so much, Dana. You know what I was thinking, Ashley? You know who attended a lot of parties and worked in magazines back in the day and also didn't write a memoir but kept a really good diary about it? I'll tell you. Andy Warhol. Ooh. This week, we've got a very good essay by Bob Colacello, who was the former editor of Interview, Andy Warhol's magazine, back in the 80s and 90s. And he started with Andy when he was very young, went out with Andy to a lot of those parties when Andy would always say, they're not parties, they're work. And he would go around town with him. But why Bob has a story this week is Ryan Murphy, the prolific creator for Netflix, of all things from Glee to the recent Halston docuseries, has a six-part, six-hour documentary premiering on Netflix next week called The Andy Warhol Diaries. And it's based on the diary entries that Warhol dictated to his secretary, Pat Haggett, from 76 until he died in 87. And in it, Bob basically says he disagrees with Murphy and how he cut this documentary together. He says, it's come up with a totally humorless, narrowly focused through a queer lens, darkly melodrama about Andy's love life or lack thereof. So it's a great essay from someone who knew Andy maybe more intimately than many people and a counter note to what Ryan's Murphy's take on it is. Sign me up. This is required watching for any fans of Airmail, Andy Warhol, and Ryan Murphy, of which I think there's a lot of overlap. A lot of overlap, but I just want to tell you, I'm not the biggest fan of Ryan Murphy. Whoa. Gauntlet throne. Just saying. Okay. All right, Michael, that's a story for another day. Okay, we're running out of time here. We're going to get some mail about this, but I'm ready for it. 
Michael, let's give our listeners something to actually enjoy this weekend, even though it will be difficult, we admit. What do you have? All right. If you're looking for a distraction, you've been searching for one. I've got one. It is The Dropout, the eight-part limited series now on Hulu, which is the dramatization of the Elizabeth Holmes slash Theranos story, starring Amanda Seyfried as Holmes. This is as good, I think, of a dramatization as you'll find. I think Seyfried is a revelation here, as is the rest of the supporting cast, which ranges from William H. Macy to Sam Watterson and Naveen Andrews as a totally creepy Sunniwal Bawani. But if you've followed the Holmes trial, as we covered it here at Airmail, you'll know some of the details. But what this story and this treatment really digs into so far, as far as I've seen it, is Holmes's psychological profile, which I always find very compelling, beginning with her childhood in Houston, where we are reminded, many of you may have forgotten this, that she was exposed to business fraud early when her father lost his job at Enron. So it goes on from there. That's just the kind of maybe note you want to need right now because it's a bad person doing bad things. But you know how it turns out. Justice is served. So maybe that's a good escape for you right now. Sign me up. I mean, I'm so tempted to recommend the panacea for all difficult things in life, which is Monty Don's Gardener's World, but I won't because I'm sure half our readers are already watching that already. But I will recommend uh, the new season of Mrs. Maisel on Amazon Prime is wonderful. I've been loving that so far first few episodes. And then I've got a little something to look forward to, Michael, in May. Fashion people already know there is a book coming out called Anna, the biography. And we are, in fact, talking about Anna Wintour. This is an unauthorized biography written by Amy O'Dell. She's interviewed dozens, hundreds, perhaps, of Anna's intimates, friends, foes, all of the above. And she has given us a really incisive take on the woman who's really been at the center of the fashion industry for approximately 40 years. Anna, the biography by Amy O'Dell coming out in May pre-order your copy now and start following Amy on Instagram. She's a great resource for uh, a lot of things happening in fashion. And also, I I really enjoy her takes. She's full of a good take. So when I can, Michael, I will hand this over to you. They're only sending out paper copies of the galley, hard copies, not PDFs. So it's got to go to somebody else, but it's coming to you next. Good. I can read it before May. And then when it officially comes out, you and I can have Amy on here and do a whole nuclear wind tour kind of conversation. No nuclear jokes, Michael. Not right now. Let me take that back. Sorry. He retracts. All right, Michael, on that note, we wish you all a wonderful weekend. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you back here next Saturday. And Michael, please read us out. Absolutely. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify. And most of all, thank you for joining us.